Welcome to the View from the Valley podcast by Delaware Valley Classical School. I'm Anthony Erty, head of school. Now, more than ever, education is a battle for our children's minds and hearts. On this podcast, we discuss classical Christian education and what it looks like in practice. For more information on what we do here, visit dvclassical.org. Welcome back to another episode of the View from the Valley podcast. Today, we're talking about God's revelation in the world, how ideas impact us in very practical ways, and other miscellaneous thoughts with Dr. Nicholas DiDonato. Dr. DiDonato teaches humanities uh, broadly, but more specifically teaches Western civilization, natural theology, U.S. history uh, at our school, and uh, is a blessing to us. So, Dr. DiDonato, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. So, let's start here. Um, Give us a little bit of your background. Uh, You have a little bit of an eclectic background, and so uh, I think it'd be helpful for our listeners to hear about what that background is. Yeah, so my background actually started out with a love of computer science, especially algorithms. And so my undergraduate actually was pursuing computer science. That's what my undergraduate degree is in, because I just love the process of thinking through precise problems. But then as I was doing some research in AI, I got interested in issues. It was called epistemology, which is philosophy of knowledge. And for me, that was the bridge from a more we could say science-oriented focus to a more philosophical one. And so I ended up going to to seminary at Princeton Seminary to get my MDiv. I was able, very fortunate to study under Dr. Van Heisting, who is renowned worldwide, not surprisingly, because he's a Princeton professor, (laughs) for his intersection understanding of theology and science. So I was able to understand that particular relationship through him and his approach to theology. So he's, he's really famous for approaches to rationality and to theological methodology, and very much in, in contact with the sciences. So that was extraordinarily helpful. So I got a very heavy focus on epistemology, on rationality, on theological methodology from him. And then I went on to do my PhD under Dr. Robert Cummings Neville, who is a metaphysician. And so because actually, as I wrote my master's thesis under Van Heisting, I found that metaphysics really is necessary because especially in a lot of uh, analytic philosophy, there's almost a disdain for anything metaphysical. But then I was doing my research under Van Heisting and and looking under the importance of metaphysics for the sciences, I found that metaphysics was just not really avoidable. And so to sort of buff that, I went to study under, under Neville to get a more robust understanding of metaphysics and theology and under that program, which was another theology and science program, where then my dissertation work was on Dionysius. Okay. You use the term metaphysician, right? Yes. I've been, I've been to a physician. Should I be going to a metaphysician? <laughs> well, but, right, I should define this. So I define epistemology as a field of philosophy that's what is knowledge, nature of knowledge. Metaphysics is a philosophy of what is real, mm-hmm. which is very pertinent to the sciences because... It, depending on how you understand the sciences, they're going to tell you what is real, what's not real. So you may have heard of the term a materialist or a scientific materialist. It should be a metaphysical position saying all that actually exists, all that's real, is what science tells us. So they can now be one particular metaphysical position. Okay. So that's a good segue. So you, you've mentioned science a couple of times here. We seem, as people in the West, to find security in science and in the scientific method. Uh, We're certainly not immune from this in the church. um, Pre-modern explanations for phenomena are set aside in favor of modern explanations on the basis that sometimes, at least, we moderns have it right now. Um, 
Can we talk a little bit about the scientific method and perhaps specifically uh, what it is and uh, what relative confidence we should have in it? Yes, what it is. Well, again, how much time do we have again? <laughs> yeah, right. I have to watch the clock. So uh, let, let me first say that in modern philosophy of science, looking at what is the nature of science, there seems to be... I would say now agreement that there is no such thing as the scientific method. There is no one particular method that's going to be able to fit all the sciences. So just to do a very easy example, look at a geologist versus a chemist. A chemist is probably going to do various kinds of experiments. A geologist simply can't, right? They, they're not earthbenders. They can't make the earth move, right? They can't do various things. They're more of wait and see. Uh, and likewise, you can maybe compare them more to almost astrophysicists. Again, astrophysicists can't make the cosmos move. They can do experiments with their models, but their models have to be tested by nature. They can't just, just do models do nothing else. Obviously, that wouldn't really work, because what if your models are incorrect? You have to test them against cosmological events. Well, those cosmological events would happen once in a lifetime, at, you know, and even that might be frequent for some of them. So again, it's not a matter of simply doing experiment. And then, and then running the experiments because not every scientific field even has access to do those kinds of experiments. Again, they could do modeling, but again, the modeling has to actually test it against nature. It can't just be its own little bubble because then who knows how correct it is. So all that to say is that it's not even clear that there is a particular method that would even unify science or something we could even call the scientific method. It's going to be more that different particular fields of science have their own methods that they consider to be valid for the parts of nature that they study. And it's not going to be that, well, if I'm studying quantum particles, I can use that same exact method to study organisms, and I can use that same exact method to study rocks. That clearly is not going to work. Mm -hmm. And so this is also called uh, the disunity of science and, and the scientific method. So, so, so first, is there even such thing as the scientific method? I would suggest at the very least, no, or if there is, it needs to be argued for. So then we also have to ask, because I think you mentioned something like this about how we favor it, what kind of results can we expect from the scientific method? Can the scientific method either prove things to be true or demonstrate things to be false? And again, in modern philosophy of science, the answer seems to be no in both cases. Because if it were the case that the scientific method could definitively prove things to be true, then there wouldn't be any dead scientific theories. By geocentrism, the, the idea that the Earth, the center of the universe, would still be true because there are various experiments that prove that to be the case. Or various experiments to prove entities who don't believe it anymore, like phlogoson theories. That would be that was sort of a early theory before oxygen. So you had these ideas that were thought to be true that no one now would say these experiments actually are are valid. Let, let me let me interject a question here. So, sure. but that was centuries ago, right? The geocentrism. Argument, yeah, yes. Right? So, um, what about now? Haven't we haven't we perfected the, the scientific methods um, at this point? Well, Aren't we so much more you're not gonna, enlightened? Well, you're, you're not going to get past the fundamental problem of how do you know that you're right? How do you know that 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, people are going to think we're all idiots? There's nothing in a scientific method that has fundamentally changed that would allow you to say, oh yes, now this truth is definitely not going to change. And also, if anything, we have a bigger crisis in phys physics, for instance, now than the entire history of science, which would be the contradiction between Einstein's theory of general relativity and quantum mechanics. This is a very deep problem in physics and might very well be resolved by both those theories being wrong, right? So, or again, the various, I think you'll find 
no more confidence in the scientific method and in science than in the 19th century. People really honestly thought Newton had 100% right and Newton would never be proven wrong and we got this figured out. So I, I can't remember the name of the, of the physicist now. I want to say it was Nicholson. That could be incorrect. But he said that all physics has left to do is calculate constants to the next decimal point. And as it would turn out, within his own lifetime, there would be quantum mechanics, which would utterly explode Newtonian physics. And then Einstein would come in and get rid of Newton on the cosmological scale. So, and maybe we just focus on Newton for a little bit. We could look at one of the things he's most famous for, which would be his theory of gravity as, as sort of an invisible pull force. Well, before Newton, under Aristotle, gravity wasn't considered a, a pull force. Aristotle has a theory of natural motion for how things move. The Newton says, no, there is this other force called gravity that attracts things together. But that Einstein says, no, gravity is in fact a pseudo force. And so it's been observed that in many ways, Einstein's understanding of the cosmos is more similar to Aristotle's than it is to Newton's. So again, the, the question is, if science is supposed to prove things, who has proven more things than under the Newtonian understanding of the world? All the experiments they did, all the proofs they had, mathematical, physical, and otherwise, and it turns out they were incorrect. So all to say is, if we're going to arrogate ourselves and say, no, we really got it right this time, I would suggest that we learn from history and say, look, you're not going to get any more confident than a 19th century Newtonian, and no one looks at them and say, oh, they were correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. So talk a little bit about, so you, what is induction? What is abduction? Yeah, so so then getting to the, the scientific method. So, so granted that there is not one particular unified scientific method, and granted that it's not clear that scientific method can prove or even show things to be incorrect, still I want to say something about what exactly it is. Those are all kind of just sort of broad categories that aren't super descriptive. So to still nevertheless paint in very broad strokes, we can more or less, and again, there are a lot of copyrights, these are again broad strokes, understand the scientific method as inductive or what's called abductive, using abductive reasoning. So what are, what are these terms? Well, before we get to even those terms, let's understand what sort of is deductive reasoning. So, so notice that scientific method tends to use either inductive or abductive, not deductive reasoning. So deductive reasoning is you have premises and then the conclusion logically follows of necessity from those premises. So the most famous syllogism probably is all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. So that conclusion, Socrates is mortal, necessarily follows from the premises. If you buy both those premises, you accept that they're true, the conclusion itself must follow. There's sort of no way around that. And that's called deductive reasoning. It's top down. You establish your premises and then they then focus in and force the conclusion. That is deductive reasoning, that's sort of classical Aristotelian logic and the kind of logic that we teach at our school. So notice that the scientific method does not do that. It instead engages in, again, typically either inductive or abductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning, rather than saying, here are my premises, here's a conclusion that necessarily follows, it instead says, here's a premise, here's a, that premise again, here's a premise a, another finite number of times, and then from that I'm going to make a general conclusion. So it could be something very simple, just go back to gravity, we could say, a, a pen falls once, a pen falls twice, a pen falls three times, so then I'll assert, therefore, the pen will always fall. So 
the issue that, for example, the Aristotle and the classical thinkers had with inductive reasoning is that it logically doesn't follow. So to, to go back to the deductive example, if I say all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, that all necessarily follows. You really can't disagree with that statement unless you disagree with one of my premises directly. But if I drop the pen three times, it doesn't necessitate that the pen will always fall. So notice that in inductive reasoning, the conclusion was called is stronger than the premises. Because each premise just said that the pencil fell at a discrete time, a particular time it fell. Whereas the conclusion says it's going to always fall. But that's not so with deductive reasoning. In deductive reasoning, you have one or more major premises that allow you to have a conclusion. So notice in the, the, the deductive argument, the idea that uh, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, is less strong than the claim all men are mortal. So in deductive reasoning, you're never going to have a conclusion that has a stronger claim than any of the premises. It could be an equal claim. You could argue from major premises to another major premise, or from major premise and a minor premise to a minor premise. You could do that. But inductive reasoning, why it was so heavily critiqued, and, well, we could, we could discuss more about that later, how it was treated in the medieval period, I said that the kind of knowledge you get from it isn't going to be certain. It's not going to be uh, truth in the strong sense. So Plato, for example, calls it opinion. Aristotle has a whole discourse of how different fields have different levels of, we could say, truth or certainty. And so the idea is that it's fine to extrapolate, it's fine to use induction, but just realize what you're getting yourself into. You're not going to be able to pull truths from this by the very nature of the reasoning that you're using, because the kind of reason that you're using is going from weaker premises to a stronger one, which is, strictly speaking, logically an invalid thing to do. So the, the other kind of reasoning that, that sciences engage in is called abductive reasoning. So in, in abductive reasoning, you have a hypothesis, you uh, assert it, and then insofar as it cannot be disproven, we can say the hypothesis is at least rational or seems to be true. So, for example, this is what you would find in, to go back to the geological or the astrophysicists, this is what they would do. They would say, have this hypothesis, have this assertion, let's wait for whatever tectonic shift to happen or cosmological event to happen. Okay, did this prove my hypothesis? Well, no, so the hypothesis still stands. This is still our, our best explanation. So often abductive reasoning is called an appeal to best explanation. Which proposition or hypothesis is able to best explain the event and makes the most sense and was able to resist to the best of its ability counterexamples. So like I said, pretty much every scientific field has to deal with counterexamples. That's just the nature of science, whether it's physics or chemistry. Every field of science, that's why you have scientific journals, has issues it cannot currently deal with and that are being tackled by the community. I see. I see. So that would be the scientific method in broad strokes. So either using inductive reasoning or, or abductive reasoning. But notice in both of those cases, you're not really hitting upon truth in a strong sense, which isn't a bad thing. It's only a bad thing, like you were saying earlier, if we take science to be the master discourse or the master discipline. If that's supposed to then rule the world and dictate everything works and be of the highest value, then it is a problem if it can't give us eternal truth. So for, for Plato and his followers, or for the medievals, when they want truth, they want truth to be, or they say truth to be, eternal and unchanging by its very nature. Truth can't change. It's true today, can't change tomorrow. And so if you're in a field whose 
facts are changing, whose truths are changing, whose very definitions of what element is, for instance, whose very definition of what a planet is. Like, all these things are, are changing all the time. The medievals looked at that and they said, well, that's fine, and you may have very rational things to believe, and it may be what Plato called true opinion, but it can't be truth properly defined. Which, again, truth being that which is eternal and unchanging. And so for Plato, if you're... If your field, if what you're studying is susceptible to change, then it's simply opinion. Now, in our culture, opinion has very negative connotations. Plato doesn't mean it in a disparaging sense at all. It's just simply to note that this isn't the same level of knowledge as proper truth, which by its nature has to be, like I said, eternal unchanging. So, so for the medievals, natural philosophy, which is what they, we would now call science, they call it natural philosophy. Science is, is a modern term really developed in the 19th century. Before that, it was simply called natural philosophy. So they have a place for it. It's just not in the number one spot. For them, theology was the queen of the sciences. Theology, because that's exactly what studies what's eternal, unchanging, forever true, and that will then dictate and shape everything else by the virtue of its unchanging nature. And so if you have shifting what, what Thomas Kuhn calls paradigms of science, where it's geocentric or heliocentric or a Newtonian cosmology versus Einstein cosmology, that's really kind of okay. Because what's, to use the metaphysical word again, because what's metaphysically grounding all this is going to be something not changing. Mm -hmm. And so the way this is often how the Christian tradition works is things are hierarchical. There's an order of goods, or as Augustine says, an order of loves. And so things can find their proper place and be what they actually are when they're properly aligned. And the problem with our society is when we try to make science something it's not. The main source of knowledge, the primary source of knowledge, the ground of all other knowledge, then you run into all kinds of, of difficulties and problems because then not everything has a role anymore. So when theology, again, is, is the queen of the sciences, you have a place for ethics. You have a place for axiology, which is a philosophy of value. All those things fit. But if you are a scientific reductionist, you have no place for ethics. Right? Ethics is an illusion created by evolution because it happened to help the species survive. And likewise, values is imposed upon reality rather than being inherent into reality, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? So notice how when you misplace what the proper queen of the sciences is, when you put the wrong queen in there, then a lot of other disciplines don't even have room to breathe or to exist whatsoever. So, so let's... You've, you've mentioned natural philosophy. You've talked about theology as queen of the sciences. That's uh, a good transition to natural theology, which is the actual title of a course that yes. is offered here at DBCS and that 12th graders take. Um, yes. Give us a little bit of an understanding of what it is and what you're doing in that class with the students, what you're reading. Yeah. Um, and then even more, more generally, how does understanding these concepts, right, natural theology... How does it solidify both our intellectual understanding of the world? I think you've already touched on that a bit, but also our personal faith. So a textbook definition of natural theology would be knowing God using reason alone apart from the scriptures and how God relates to nature, to reality. So those are those two aspects that the course really focuses on. So at the beginning of the course, we actually focus on a lot of philosophy of science, which we've just been discussing because if we're to discuss how God is known through nature, how God relates to nature, we have to first know what nature is, and that is known nowadays through science. So we really have to know what science is and what science is not. And then once we have that cleared up, then we can get into issues of, okay, how do we know God through reason? And then how do we 
see God, understand God, see present in nature. So uh, to answer your question then, God is Logos. Logos is the second person of the Trinity. Logos has become incarnate in our Lord and God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Logos is a Greek word that has well, many meanings, but one of which is reason or intelligibility or rational structure, intelligible structure. So it is God that makes all three, all things known through and created through the Logos. So the fact that things are intelligible, they're intelligible because of and through the Logos. So Max is a confessor, he has what he calls the, the logos loi distinction, loi just being the plural of, of logos in Greek. The idea is that there is the logos, which is in, in, in a sense the principle of rationality itself, the principle of intelligibility itself, who is the second person of the Trinity, and then things have rationality, obviously, because presumably you're able to understand some of what I'm saying, right? But it, nevertheless, I'm using grammar, right? I'm turning my, my words into ideally coherent speech, or maybe you're driving in a car right now and you can understand the road. So things have intelligibility. This means that they can be grasped by, by a mind. Intelligent mind can go and then grasp these things. And so that's all done through the logos, through the creator. And so a lot of, of Natural theology is trying to make those kinds of connections, understanding God as creator, and then what that means for everyday life. Because often I worry that we think of God as, you know, some dude in the sky who's twiddling his thumbs, you know, and he's waiting us for all die and go to heaven. And, and I worry this is problematic because this is actually a very secular understanding of God, where God is effectively removed from reality. He's there, but he's kind of added an add-on to reality. He's extraneous, right? You have reality that kind of stands on its own, and then when you die, you go to heaven. So in this mindset, God might just be like the appendix, right, to reality, right? It's like, oh, you live your life, and then you die, and, and, and hopefully you go to heaven. But if we understand God as Logos, then everything participates in that. Everything reflects, reflects the Logos. Everything depends on God at every single moment. And that's hopefully answered your question about how it begins to strengthen our faith, to understand, to re-see the world, to unlearn the secular worldview, which teaches us God is just so transcendent, have him be an afterthought and, and live your life. But no, actually, the, the very chair I'm sitting in, the microphone I'm speaking into, all these things are intelligible because of the logos and reflect back to God and depend on at every single moment of their existence, God, their creator. So again, it's not it's not this deistic idea of, well, God created things way back when, and again, I guess he's just in heaven now hanging out. It's not that at all. It's that, yes, of course, God created all things, but he's also the sustainer of all things. That all things at every moment need to be upheld by him because he's the only ground of existence. He's the only ground of logos, of intelligibility. And insofar as things have being and have intelligibility, they must of necessity point back to him. And the details of that particular argument is what the class is about is how do we understand, okay, if we're going to grant this objective truth, grant this objective reality, why does that then necessitate pointing back to God? And hopefully that strengthens the student's faith and also awakens them to the wonder and beauty of reality, to realizing that the reality that we live in is, again, not a secular world that's just sort of detached and or has been abandoned by God or something, but actually is at every moment pointing us back to the Creator. So, Maybe you could just give a, a quick sampling of the text that you're reading in that class and, uh, you know, or, or in other classes that you're teaching, right? Based on our conversation and obviously what I know about, they, they, they can be viewed as dense texts, yes. right? 
there's dense material, language is packed tight, full of, of meaning and analysis, etc., etc. But they're doing well. High schoolers do well with these texts. Yes, yes. No, I my first year teaching here, I I had ninth graders read a small excerpt of Thomas Aquinas, and then I I went to visit one of my wife's friends over Christmas break, and she teaches eighth graders. And I told her what my ninth graders were reading. They're like, oh, ninth graders can't understand that. What are you doing? Like, they can't possibly understand that. But actually, I chuckled to myself because I, I had their midterms with me, and they were doing quite well. So to, to tackle difficult texts, reverse, I think, is just a necessity. Because the last time I checked, which I want to say is about two years ago now, the average American reading level is the seventh grade reading level. And to me, this is just not a good result. I don't think we want to say, yes, we want our students to graduate at a seventh grade reading level. We want, And part of the reason for that is because people aren't pressed to push their reading comprehension. We think reading comprehension is something we ditch in fourth grade or something. Oh, great. They can read now. We're good to go. Well, no, because as any adult knows, there are difficult texts out there, difficult texts for me and for anyone, because you have to be trained to read particular kinds of texts that, like you said, are, are dense and difficult. So then... How do we do that? One is, for me, the most important thing is always allowing students to ask questions. Questions are really the driving force of my class. So if you go to my board at any particular day, you'll see it full of questions. There's very little notes that I'm writing on the board. Almost all of our student questions. If you can read them, right? If you can read them, yeah. I've been trying to get better with that. So I'm trying to get better with that. But yes, if you can read them, then, <laughs> then you'll see that the board's full of questions because... It's important for students to be able to admit, you know what, I did not understand this. This is confusing. What does this word mean? I think that's great. It's very often a student just says, you know, I didn't know what this word meant. Well, fine. We'll look it up. That's, that's, we will, so you're actively we will, using the dictionary we will, in we, class. Absolutely. It's very, very common for us to be using dictionaries, looking words up. Sometimes words have technical meanings, and that's good for me. I'm like, oh, wait a second. I forgot this word has a technical meaning. I need to create a, a glossary for them. And it happens. So for some of my texts, I actually give students, it's actually the very first page, so they can't miss it, a list of definitions of technical terms that you can't actually find in a dictionary because they're technical philosophical terms or they're archaic terms or something that you wouldn't be able to easily uh, find in a dictionary. So I, I do try to do that. Because again, the point is to expand the student's vocabulary so that they can understand text. So they don't understand, they should be able to ask questions. And because, again, I want to encourage intellectual curiosity and, and I think more importantly, encourage admitting I don't know because I think it's very unhealthy as someone who's been in a lot of graduate classes where this happens, where you have people who are afraid of being wrong, of afraid of, of, of not being the smartest person in the room. And so sometimes they just rant utter nonsense. And then this is bad because, again, I've been in graduate classes where this happened and the professor has to very gently as they possibly can correct the nonsense that was spewed. So instead of having that be the approach, just everyone just be, you know, self-confident and just say whatever, let's instead ask questions we don't know. And if you do know, then defend your assertion with evidence from the text so that we can all understand where you're coming from. Because you very well may be right, which is fantastic. Obviously, I'm a teacher. I want you to be right. I don't want you to be wrong. But then that rightness has to be grounded in not the confidence in which you say something, but actually rooted in the text so that we could all go back and say, okay, does this make sense or not? I see. Yep. So, and you're relying on primary, not secondary sources. Yes. For the 99% of the reading. As much as possible. As much as possible. As much yeah. as possible. Yeah. Because, because 
uh, the reality is the the secondary literature and the scholarship is shifting. It's constantly changing. I certainly can't keep on top of all of it. So, but if you are well versed in the actual primary sources themselves, then if you do pursue this on your own, you are interested in secondary sources. You'll be able to understand them and understand those arguments because you know the primary sources. Whereas, again, just to go back to my graduate school personal experience. When there are people who try to take shortcuts and just read secondary texts and not be bothered with primary texts, that's a lot more work, right? Certainly a lot more work to read, for example, all the works of Plato than to read one short textbook summarizing his thought, right? It's just you order back to difference in the amount and difficulty of reading that that is, but then you don't have any basis. And then if someone says, well, no, Plato doesn't say that. The only thing you have to fall back on is the author's authority. And what good does that do you, right? Well, there is a level of, of you know, respectability, it's the weakest kind. To actually have knowledge, you want to actually know what the primary texts themselves say. And this is why I do that, because even if I am mistaken, because I'm certainly not an expert in all things, right? So even if I give someone a bad interpretation of Thomas Aquinas or Plato, whatever it may be, at least they've read the primary text. And so some other professor who knows more about it than I do could then go correct them. But at least they'll be literate and understand what the error is, understand what the correction is, and they'll be able to move forward. As opposed to if I just give them all secondary texts, and the secondary text gets outdated, they don't have anything then. Right. They, they, they're left with nothing. They're completely right. bereft of any kind of uh, benefit. So, so for me, the, the primary texts have to utterly be important. And it'd be the foundation. And I also want to note that as C.S. Lewis in, in his introduction to Athanasius' On the Incarnation, I think he quite rightly notes that sometimes the primary texts are easier to read than the secondary texts. Because the secondary texts spend a lot of time trying to compact things and 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 explain things often in a less clear way. I, I find this to be the case with, with Plato's Republic, for instance. If you read Plato's Republic, though some parts of it are very difficult to read, but some parts of it are not. And all it tries to compact it, a lot of nuance gets lost, and that creates confusion. Nick? This is a dense conversation, <laughs> right? Sorry. And obviously, a lot more can be said. No, it's 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 great, um, but that unfortunately is all the time we have today. So, thank you for spending some time. Please subscribe to the View from the Valley podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, give us a review. Till next time, grace and peace. Mm-hmm.